Why pick one city, one beach, one restaurant, or even one view? With Celebrity Cruises, you can have it all. Explore the best of Europe, the Caribbean, and Alaska with the best premium cruise line. And now get 75% off your second guest, plus bonus savings on select dates with Celebrity Cruises' semi-annual sale. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Offer applies to non-refundable fares and select sailing. Savings vary by stateroom category. Other terms apply. Visit Celebrity.com for details. Ships Registry Malta. Episode 348 of the Bowery Boys. Cheers! The stories of four fabulous cocktails. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And Greg, you know, as we wind up the year 2020 here, um, which has been a very trying, exhausting, surreal experience, I think, for all of us, Mm -hmm. we just kind of thought that perhaps we could all use a drink, you know, or at least those (laughs) of us who are 21 years and older could use a drink. Yes, yes, let's clarify. But not just any drink, of course, a good, stiff drink. It is It is officially cocktail time, the happiest of all hours. And we thought we'd look into the backstories of a few famous cocktails that were either invented or made famous here in New York. And it seemed kind of like a seasonally appropriate way also to sort mm-hmm. of wrap things up here. You know, many of us aren't able to go out to holiday parties, so we're bringing the party here. Greg, you and <laughs> yes. I are kind of the bartenders tonight, so... Oh, yes. So remember to tip your bartenders handsomely, please. And we'll be serving up stories of four different drinks. Now, cocktails are more than alcoholic beverages. Mm -hmm. Over the decades, they've also been status signifiers, indulgences to show off exotic ingredients, or elixirs, allowing one to display a bit of behind-the-bar showmanship. Miracle elixirs. (laughs) The the idea, of course, of mixing different kinds of drinks together is obviously not new. It goes way back. But Greg, where did the idea of a cocktail come from? Which, by the way, is a, a question that I have always wanted to ask you on the Bowery Boys. Where does, <laughs> here. Where does the word cocktail come from? Well, there are a few theories about the word cocktail, and many of them have to do with horses. Oh, So in the old days, this is a terrible practice, but in the old days, they would sometimes dock or amputate the tails of horses for various reasons. They were called docked horses. And so then like the tail stub would remain positioned upward, perhaps, you know, like a rooster or a cock. So that little that little bit of a tail. So a racehorse would be cocktailed. You know, like a rooster tail. Um, And some think that then this evolved to mean something that was not pure or purebred. Wow. I mean, I could actually just throw in some joke here, but I'm just going to (laughs) step aside from it. So then in terms of drinks, meaning that a drink wasn't pure or straight up liquor, Mm -hmm. but rather mixed or diluted with something else. Mm -hmm. And did that custom then come from Europe or from racetracks or where where did this come from well the the cocktail is actually an american idea or rather obviously people have been mixing drinks but the idea of a cocktail was kind of perfected and popularized here in the united states the word itself starts popping up in newspapers and different sources as early as the start of the 19th century In fact, one of the first mentions comes from a May 1806 publication called The Balance and Columbian Repository, published in Hudson, New York, believe it or not. To quote from The Balance, cocktail is a stimulating liquor composed of spirits of any kind, sugar, water, and bitters. It is vulgarly called bittered sling. And it's supposed to be an excellent electioneering potion, inasmuch as it renders the heart stout and bold at the same time that it fettles the head. 
It does fuddle the head, doesn't it? <laughs> um, you know, some cocktails are actually intended to help defuddle your head as well, which I'm going to get to in a bit here. And we'll just sidestep the whole electioneering aspect of cocktails. <laughs> yes. Um, especially those cocktails that involve days of result counting. <laughs> Headache inducing. <laughs> Election night in America continued inducing. <laughs> yes. But um, as we can infer from this snippet then here, mm -hmm. many cocktails must have 19th century origins or even earlier. Uh, yeah. And in fact, cocktails began to diversify rather quickly, like the, the moment they were introduced, thanks to the accessibility of things like tonic waters and fruit juices and imported ingredients. In the 1850s, a famed bartender, perhaps the first famous bartender in the United States by the name of Jerry Thomas, actually opened a bar in the same building as P.T. Barnum's American Museum down on Ann Street and Broadway and sold cocktails from his bar. Wow. The original Barnum's American Museum. And that yeah. is interesting because Barnum himself wasn't much of a drinker. No. In fact, for much of his public life, he not only abstained, but he actually lectured about the merits of temperance. But still, if this Jerry Thomas, if this first bartender had a touch of showman in him, and it sounds like it did, I'm sure <laughs> that he and Barnum got along famously. Oh, yeah. Uh, Mr. Thomas. Well, I shouldn't say Mr. Thomas. I should say Professor Thomas, um, because that's actually how he would prefer to be to be known for his skills of drink alchemy here. Mm -hmm. um, in, in fact, in 1862, uh, he wrote one of the very first cocktail guides called How to Mix Drinks or The Bon Vivant's Companion. And it should speak to the popularities of cocktails by this time, 1862, that the book features hundreds of different drinks, wow. right? But none of those cocktails that we'll speak about are even in this book, okay? They were all invented later. That is strange. So then which drinks made his books? Are any of those drinks even still... Like, familiar oh, yeah. or drinkable today? Well, <laughs> some of them I would not advise. But there are, like, some eggnogs in there and some oh. mint juleps. Okay. There's a host of punches and sours and toddies. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there's a bunch of fun stuff that has fallen by the wayside. For instance, uh, some sangarees, cobblers. Yeah. Um, and there's even a brandy and soda drink, Tom, which maybe we'll try one time, called the Stonewall. Well, let's, shall we promise right now to head over to the Stonewall by the end of 2021 and knock back a Stonewall? <laughs> yes, let's see if they'll make one for us. <laughs> well, I should preface here that in these stories, we must say that they're a little bit like our ghost story podcast, where there's kind of a lot of legend that gets folded into actual history here. So we'll be telling the history of these drinks, but we'll also be, I think, a little bit debunking history because, you know, the debut of a certain cocktail isn't normally announced. It often evolves from something else. You know, so to be a cocktail historian is a little bit like being like a forensic scientist or a detective. Yeah, because as we'll be seeing, when a particular drink would hit it big in New York, it wasn't uncommon then for, you know, other bars to take notice and start making making the drink themselves, often with their own unique twist. Oh, yeah. So then which cocktail are we starting with? Well, we're going to begin with one of New York's namesake beverages, a dark and elegant cocktail from the Gilded Age, a drink perfect for a glamorous evening in the city, or, say, a train ride with Marilyn Monroe. I'm speaking about the Manhattan. Dolores, do you still have that bottle of vermouth? Sure. Verm who needs vermouth? We've got bourbon. We can make Manhattans. Okay. Manhattans at this time of night? Bring the cocktail shaker. Oh, sugar. You're going to spoil my surprise. Some like it hot, Greg. Some like it hot. <laughs> Although I think we prefer ours chilled. Very much so, yes. Yes. So, so the Manhattan then. Remind us what goes into a Manhattan. Well, you'll find millions of variations. Millions? Yeah. There's a million different ways to make a million different drinks. But mostly the core ingredients are whiskey, sweet vermouth, 
and a dash of bitters served with a maraschino cherry in a cocktail glass. And named for Manhattan. Just curious, do the other boroughs have cocktails named for them? Is there Queens? Oh, yeah. You know, I often enjoy a Brooklyn cocktail sometimes. It's sort of similar to a Manhattan. They're both made with rye whiskey. But there are cocktails named after the Bronx. There's one named for Queens. And there's even one called the Staten Island Ferry. And all of them are actually decades old. Many of those even trace to Prohibition. Prohibition, um, a period during which there was a lot of mixing up, right, of (laughs) Mm -hmm. often inferior liquors that were floating about. So people, by mixing them, were actually trying to improve the taste. And sometimes they were, you know, they were stretching liquors out, which is another reason to make cocktails, um, to kind of water them down a little bit, Mm. diluting them, but making the taste better, you know, by mixing in other ingredients. But not the Manhattan, because the Manhattan is far older. And here's the thing, Tom, it's actually not specifically named for the borough, but actually for a very famous Gilded Age institution named the Manhattan Club, which was a social club for elites, which was founded in 1865. It was formed in 1865, the same year as Mm -hmm. the end of the Civil War. How, How did that come about? The club was formed in the aftermath of the war by New Yorkers of democratic persuasion, i.e. so not the party of Abraham Lincoln, but that political lineage to the club quickly dissolved. And really, it was more of just an upscale social club by the 1870s for men of all political stripes. Now, the Manhattan Club first met at Delmonico's in September of 1865, but then later at an old mansion at 96 Fifth Avenue um, at 15th Street. It's the old James Benkard mansion. And it was here that the Manhattan was almost certainly created, okay? Fifth Avenue, 15th Street. And many stories even point to one specific party, at the Manhattan Club in November of 1874. Wow, this is sounding very posh. Who was the party Mm -hmm. for? Well, it was a party in honor of Samuel Tilden, Mm -hmm. the anti-Tweed Democrat who we've mentioned many times in our show, who in November of 1874 had just been elected governor of New York. And as legend had it, then there was a formal soiree held here at the club in celebration of Tilden, who was, of course, a Democrat. The party, as the story goes, was hosted by Jenny Jerome, a Brooklyn socialite who was newlywed to Lord Randolph Churchill. Oh, I know where this is going. (laughs) Yes. As in Winston Churchill's family? Yeah, Winston Churchill would be the son of Jenny Jerome, but... Please stick with me because, sorry, spoiler alert, um, this legend that I'm about to tell has some problems, but this is the legend that is associated with the Manhattan. Anywho, Jenny was the hostess at this party that very night, and she wanted to create something new and magical for the new governor. So she requested the bartenders at the Manhattan Club to invent something very original. And the key to this story here is actually not the whiskey. And by the way, this original drink was definitely rye whiskey, but it's not the whiskey that was the magic of this, but rather the vermouth or fortified wine, which had become incredibly trendy in the United States in the late 19th century. So this was the the new kind of hot ingredient Mm -hmm. of the day. In fact, it's actually vermouth that makes many of the most famous cocktails from this period. Well, right, because otherwise it's just, what, whiskey and bitters and (laughs) a cherry on top. Um, Mm -hmm. but, But it is amazing, actually. I can't believe that we actually know the exact place and time that the Manhattan was invented. Yeah, well... Okay, so here's the thing, right? This is, after all, the legend of the Manhattan. And, you know, ask any mixologist and they'll tell you some version of the story, which is great. But unfortunately, there's just a couple key details that don't exactly line up with the facts. You know, it is most likely that the Manhattan was invented at the Manhattan Club. 
And it was probably invented here at this location, 5th Avenue and 15th Street. Okay. But Jenny Jerome could not have had anything to do with its invention. Why not? Well, because in November of 1874, that's actually when she was giving birth to Winston Churchill, and she was in England. Meaning, I guess... Two things. She probably wasn't at the club, and she probably wouldn't have been asking for an innovative new cocktail. <laughs> yeah. I don't think they had a nine-month pregnant lady at a like a gentleman's upscale club during the Gilded Age. Just doesn't make sense. The story that makes more sense to me is uh, one that I'm actually going to quote from Albert W.A. Schmidt from his book called The Manhattan Cocktail, A Modern Guide to the Whiskey Classic. Quote, in this version of the drink's genesis, a president of the Manhattan Club was told by his doctor to stop drinking martinis in order to reduce his caloric intake for health reasons. The president asked the club bartender to create a new drink to replace the martini. If this tale is true, it's ironic. A Manhattan has just as many calories as a martini. So in other words, the the Manhattan was like the locale version of the martini, like a like a tab cola <laughs> version. Well, yes, you could go there, I think. <laughs> um, you'll actually find more possible origin stories to the Manhattan and other references to drinks called Manhattans, you know, in late 19th century drink guides, although it's not really even clear that they're the same drink. Mm -hmm. um, another possible interesting legend, which I do like, is that it was invented in a saloon on Houston Street in the 1870s, which suggests actually a less rarefied origin, right? A less a less elite I, origin to the Manhattan. Um, it certainly suggests that, yeah. We're going from <laughs> like the Manhattan Club on 15th and 5th down to a saloon on West Houston, yeah. yeah, so so I guess choose your poison there in terms of origin stories. But one thing is undoubtedly true. The Manhattan was invented in Manhattan. Actually, as were a lot of Manhattan spinoffs. Uh, for instance, Tom, have you ever had a Rob Roy? Oh, I, I knew one in college, but no, I've never had one. <laughs> Well, the Rob, the Rob Roy um, is a Manhattan made of scotch whiskey. And joking aside, the, the drink was named after a historical figure back in Scotland. Yeah. I, you know, like that Liam Neeson movie from the 90s? Oh, Rob yeah. Roy? I don't know if you ever saw that. Well, anyway, the Rob Roy was invented in 1894, and it's attributed to a bartender at the old Waldorf Astoria on 34th Street, uh, named in honor of an operetta, which was also called Rob Roy and debuted at the Herald Square Theater in October of that year. So we know precisely where that's from. So raise a toast to the Waldorf and, of course, to the Manhattan Club. And to Jenny Jerome and Liam Neeson <laughs> and other people who aren't involved in any way with the creation of the Manhattan. Well, for my first drink, Greg, I'm serving up Bloody Marys. Aaron, I'm a lawyer, which means that unlike you, I have passed a bar. <laughs> Let me try to explain this in, in terms you'll understand. I'm tequila. Oh, I'm liking this story better already. <laughs> These are my friends, gin, vodka, and scotch. Hello, Karen. <laughs> Hi, kids. <laughs> You've got an emergency. You want a Bloody Mary. You've poured yourself a thimble of tomato juice. Who are you going to call? Me? Tequila? Well, this is crazy talk. Exactly. So from now on, you only call tequila when you have a legal problem. Okay, I get it now. You're coming in loud and queer. <laughs> <laughs> that was, of course, Will and Karen in episode three of season four of the original run of Will and Grace on October 11th, 2001. But let me ask you, Greg... What's the first thing that pops into your mind, Will and Grace aside, when I mention Bloody Mary? 
usually I'm enjoying one during a kind of brunch type thing back when we were mm-hmm. doing those after a long night. Yeah, which makes sense because the Bloody Mary has been known for much of its history as a kind of hangover cure. And I must say, it does give you that jolt that you need. It mm-hmm. has a bit of spice in it, mm-hmm. and it's kind of soothing. Yeah, and they, they claim that the tomato juice, quote, settles the stomach and makes you feel better. Mm-hmm. And what are the other ingredients that are contained in a Bloody Mary? A Bloody Mary is made of tomato juice and vodka, as we just heard Will explain to Karen. Um, but then also various various spices and flavors, which are really up to the bartender, including most commonly salt and pepper, Worcestershire sauce, celery, celery salt, uh, lemon and lime juice can be in there, hot sauce, hot pepper can be in. Or you can just do what I do and get a Bloody Mary mix and just pour in some <laughs> vodka. There, That's true. There's always the pre-made option, the sort of mm-hmm. united flight option. <laughs> But I think that most Bloody Mary purists would never get near, you know, the pre-mixed variety. They want stalks of celery. They want olives. They want garnishes. So who invented this marvelous mashup of vegetables and vodka here? Well, it's it's actually not necessarily a vegetarian concoction because some new spins on the Bloody Mary will add bacon into their drinks. Bacon. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Well, that's a nice addition for brunch, but this, I, don't, I mean the classic, not one of these like fancy schmancy ones. Where did the original Bloody Mary come from? Well, the Bloody Mary story goes back to the Roaring Twenties, to Harry's New York Bar, which was not in New York at all, but rather it was in Paris. It, was, um, it still is in Paris. It's a bar that was very popular in the day with the, the flourishing American expat scene, you know, think post-World War I Paris. Uh, by the early 1920s, the bar was run by a Scotsman named Harry McElhone. And it even featured a bar. The actual bar fixture had been shipped over to Paris from a bar that had existed in Manhattan. Ooh, so a little bit of, of the New York experience imported mm-hmm. over here to Paris. And of course, Harry's Bar is quite famous if you are, you know, if you study literary history because it was a destination for many expats uh, who would sit here for hours. People yeah. like uh, Ernest Hemingway and Sinclair Lewis. Um, newspaper correspondents, actors, you know, Rita Hayworth and Humphrey Bogart spend time at Harry's. Ava Gardner, um, Salvador Dali. Hmm. And yeah, it, it's still around today and worth a visit. It's located near the Opera Garnier. So are you saying that the Bloody Mary started, it was invented, and was first enjoyed here at Harry's Bar? Well, a version of it. Um, so back in the 19-teens, a young man named Fernand Petiot, or they just called him Pete, mm-hmm. started working uh, in the kitchen at Harry's and then worked his way up to become the head bartender. Now, according to Harry's legend, it was in 1921 when Petiot, or Pete, was experimenting with some relatively new ingredients that were available to them, especially this new Russian import that was new to the scene called vodka. He started mixing it up for customers with all kinds of other juices that he had on hand until, voila, he mixed it with another new drink that was available to him, canned tomato juice. The first round of this new concoction then, in 1921, that Pete poured out was simply that, just vodka and canned tomato juice. Wow, so pretty simple, like tomato juice, vodka, no other ingredients, no like Worcestershire sauce? Worcestershire? Be sure of yourself, Greg. Yeah, th- I'm sorry. That's the name that just keeps given. <laughs> Worcestershire. Like, that's for sure. Um, yes. No, no Worcestershire sauce. It, and let me tell you, the first the first iteration was half and half. Okay, equal parts vodka and tomato juice. I mean, that would have made your eyes pop out. Mm-hmm. And what did they call this thing? What was its, what was its name? They gave it the name The Bucket of Blood. Mmm. Um, according to Pete's stepson, 
a man named Charles Oliver, uh, who was quoted in a 1975 article that I read in the Chicago Tribune. It was named by the first two customers who Pete had whipped it up for, um, a pair of friends who were visiting Paris from Chicago. And they had been regulars at a West Side Chicago bar called the Bucket of Blood. That's just such a striking and vivid name for a, for a cocktail and and a bar, but a vivid cocktail. I would I still kind of like it though, actually. Yeah, it's a it's a solid name, but apparently Pete also thought that it was a little bit too vivid, so um, he he asked the guys to come up with another name, and then they remembered Mary, who was a charming barmaid at that saloon, whom everybody called Bloody Mary. Well, she must have been very charming um, with that nickname. (laughs) That is at least one version of the story. Certainly, but let's go with this one. I like this one. So then how does the Bloody Mary cross the Atlantic and get to New York? Well, Pete, the bartender, brought it over. Um, He moved to the U.S., first to Canton, Ohio in 1928, and then five years later in 1933 to New York when he became the head bartender at the King Cole Bar at the St. Regis Hotel at 5th Avenue and 55th Street. Oh, the King Cole Bar, Tom. Remember, we used to go there, threw a few back, the King Cole Bar with that beautiful Maxfield Parish mural in the background. But so he came to this very nice bar and he began serving these buckets of blood or sorry bloody marys Uh, well that's the story actually according to the saint regis um and this is according to their website in 1934 and i'm quoting them quote the famed cocktail was created when serge obolensky who was a well-known man about town whose pension for vodka was in keeping with his aristocratic russian background asked petiot to make the vodka cocktail that he had had in paris The formula was spiced up with salt, pepper, lemon, and Worcestershire sauce. But since Bloody Mary was deemed too vulgar for the hotel's elegant King Cole bar, it was rechristened the, quote, Red Snapper. Hmm. And that version actually checks out with with the Chicago Tribune article that I quoted earlier, which stated that, quote, it seems that Vincent Astor, the then owner of the St. Regis, though he liked the drink, was not fond of the name, saying one night, we cannot sell something with that name on Fifth Avenue. (laughs) So here we are back in New York, back on Fifth Avenue another new drink and it sounds like this story is is fairly straightforward right well i mean as we have found with with all of these cocktails there are always disputes and the bloody mary Mm -hmm. is no different one history that i read has it that the drink actually was invented at the 21 club in new york in the 1930s There's also a version where the entertainer Roy Barton came up with the name. There's another in which the comedian George Jessel named it after his friend Mary Garotti. Now, if I would have guessed, to be quite honest, I thought it might have been, you know, maybe named after Queen Mary. Wasn't she nicknamed Bloody Mary? Queen Mary I, yes, of England, Uh who was known as Bloody Mary for her violence against Protestants in the 16th century. And naturally, it's not named after that urban legend we all play as a kid, Bloody Mary, where you say her name three times in the mirror and she appears. I've tried that many times in the morning, and one never appears, Greg. (laughs) Oh, well. No, I'm going with the story that it was the two guys in Paris naming it after Mary, the barmaid at the Bucket of Blood in Chicago. Fernand, Pete that is, by the way, remained at the St. Regis until 1966 when he retired and moved back to Canton, Ohio. And he remained there volunteering and pouring drinks part-time at a local restaurant until he died on January 6, 1975. When we return, the origins of two more fabulous cocktails, the Martini and the Cosmo. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still 
very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. For the next drink on the list, Tom, perhaps the most glamorous of all cocktails, the gold standard of cocktail experiences, although in many ways it's one of the simplest cocktails to make, honestly, but few get it exactly right. I present to you the martini. Would you care for a martini, Mr. Babcock? Well, uh, oh my God, it's Auntie Mame. Dry or extra dry? Sit down, please, Mr. Babcock. I'll make them like I do for Mr. Wolcott. Never shake. Bruises the gym. <laughs> Mustn't bruise your gin, Tom. Raise your children right <laughs> so that they can make a proper martini. Oh, my goodness. What the listener can't see are Mr. Babcock's rolling eyes um, yeah, in that true. clip. In that clip. And we have a Bowery Boys movie club, of course, about Auntie Mae. Mm-hmm. Was the martini invented in New York City? I mean, it certainly seems like it must have been born here. It seems like it, but actually the answer is no. However, one very popular type of martini does trace back to New York. And of course, I think I can fairly say that the martini has probably been the most popular cocktail in New York, especially in the 20th century, a favorite of both high-end bars and lunchtime business meetings. Those were the days. (laughs) And are we talking gin or vodka martinis? Well, both, really. The The gin martini came first, and it, it's the truly authentic martini. A vodka martini, Tom, I bet you didn't know this, is actually called a kangaroo. Oh. <laughs> I thought only beer had hops in it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I good, good cocktail puns. Anyway... As with a Manhattan, um, the other ingredient in a martini is vermouth, either dry or occasionally sweet vermouth, served with an olive. And of course, for that dirty martini experience, you pour in some olive juice. Well, martinis just might be the most famous, iconic 
cocktail, you know, in popular culture. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm imagining photos I've seen of of classic Hollywood stars of Humphrey Bogart, Catherine Hepburn with their martinis. Even FDR was pictured holding a martini. Yeah, he loved a good martini. And of course, so many writers and musicians loved martinis. To quote from Noel Coward, a perfect martini should be made by filling a glass with gin and then waving it in the general direction of Italy. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, then there is the famous poem from Dorothy Parker, quote, I like to have a martini, two at the very most. After three, I'm under the table. After four, I'm under the host. (laughs) Getting a little blue here on the show. Yes, and side note, we do also have a Dorothy Parker and the Algonquin Roundtable episode in which I think you recited the same verse. Well, I I have it tattooed on my left arm. (laughs) Not really. But in terms of the name of this drink, martini to me sounds, it sounds like an Italian word. Is it Italian? Did this develop in Italy? Well, there are many theories as to where the name came from. Probably the most likely, but the least fun theory is from Martini and Rossi a brand of vermouth that was first manufactured in Turin, Italy in the year 1863 by the wine merchants Alessandro Martini and Luigi Rossi. Okay, that seems likely. Yes, yes. But the more intriguing theory actually places the origin of the drink sometime in the 1860s in San Francisco. Oh, that's surprising. Like during the gold rush? Yeah, like in the wake of the gold rush, and more specifically, a drink from the mind of a bartender I mentioned earlier, Jerry Thomas. You mean the professor bartender downstairs from Barnum's American Museum? He comes back into our story? He's back in the story here. And, and, you know, again, he is also a man that has Barnum's flair for humbug. So let's just keep that in mind as I tell the story. To quote from the author Barnaby Collins, in his 1995 book, The Martini and Illustrated History of an American Classic, quote, Thomas returned to San Francisco. He had lived there earlier. He returned to San Francisco and set up bar in the Occidental Hotel. As the story goes, a traveler on his way to the town of Martinez, California, stepped into the bar threw a gold nugget on the table and asked Thomas to make something special. Very well. Here is a new drink I have invented for your trip. Let's call it the Martinez. Hmm. So we got the martini from Martinez, California? Well, according to one legend, keep in mind, people writing legends about the martinis are very frequently drinking them. <laughs> um, the town of Martinez, California does lay claim to the invention. Uh, so I think it's best that we not wade any further into the origin of the martini. But I will fast forward the story up to the year 1906 and to a location closer to home, the Knickerbocker Hotel. Ah, the Knickerbocker Hotel at um, 42nd and Broadway, right in Times Square. The heart of Times Square. Yeah, it opened in 1906. It was built, believe it or not, by John Jacob Astor IV, who perished on the Titanic just six years later. Today, uh, they've actually brought back the Knickerbocker Hotel. You know, for decades, it was an office building. And back when it opened in 1906, it was one of the most lavish hotels in the city. And the hotel opened here in 1906, just two years after the subway opened also Mm -hmm. right here. And the naming of this whole square from Longacre Square to, to Times Square. So this is a really important moment in this neighborhood's history. Mm, Oh, absolutely. Tom, do you know what you could have found at the Knickerbocker Bar in 1906? You would have found a 30-foot-long mural of Old King Cole painted by Maxfield Parrish. Whoa! (laughs) The very same mural that would later wind up at the St. Regis Hotel in the King Cole Bar? Yes, it's the same mural. It actually moved to St. Regis in 1932. 
Isn't that amazing? You didn't even know that it's that the Bloody Mary and the Martini have like some shared ancestry here. <laughs> and that would make sense because it was Vincent Astor who was the owner of the St. Regis at the, at the time that the Bloody Mary arrived. So it, these were in the Astor family. The Astor's rich in cocktail history. So, but back at the Knickerbocker, in fact, in the year 1912, so if you would have walked in, you would have seen that mural. And standing in front of that mural, you would have seen a bartender of Italian lineage named Martini de Arma di Taggia. And it was in that year, 1912, that it is claimed that he invented the dry martini, which is dry gin and dry vermouth. I'm sorry, did you say that his name was Martini? His name was Martini di Arma di Taggia. Yeah. But by by dry martini, you mean dry as in it was made with white vermouth, uh, which is drier. Yes, yes. White vermouth versus sweet vermouth, which is derived from red. Now, here's this is where this famous legend veers a, a bit into fiction, um, because it's claimed that the very first dry martini that he served was made for John D. Rockefeller, which is quite frankly baloney because we know that he was a famous teetotaler right well unless that was the only drink he ever had (laughs) well by prohibition the martini was more commonly seen in its natural home which is the iconic cocktail glass and it now by this point had an olive um, which was allegedly another new york innovation from a bartender named robert agnew so it found its olive, um, and meanwhile, the, the Manhattan has its cherry. I mean, the two of them seem, by this point then, by the 1920s, to be sort of established as these iconic New York drinks. Yeah, and they, they do kind of go hand in hand at this point. Hopefully not the same person. <laughs> no, don't mix your liquors. Um, past prohibition to become you know signature cocktails for cocktail lounges and nightclubs around the city. And despite the fact that some may look at the martini and see it as appearing delicate, because you have to be kind of careful holding that martini glass, um, (laughs) it actually takes on this interesting masculine image during the 30s and 40s here, thanks to frequent martini lovers like Hemingway, Bogart, as you mentioned, and Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin. And to be clear, you're only talking here about gin martinis? Yes. Well, as you mentioned, vodka, you know, became popular in Paris in the 1920s. It was a little mm-hmm. bit later here in the United States. You know, even by the 1940s, it was you know, it was considered a very exotic liquor at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what's important in the promotion of vodka, believe it or not, was the opening of the Russian Tea Room in Manhattan in the 1920s. They actually had a very famous cocktail called the Gypsy Queen. That was invented in the 1930s, and that was vodka, bitters, and Benedictine. How exotic. How medieval. <laughs> so then, so vodka's around, you know, floating around, but the vodka martini, or I guess we should say the kangaroo, first hopped on to menus, like on a more regular basis, starting in the 1950s. And then, of course, it became very popular thanks to a series of novels written by Ian Fleming, and then, of course, made even more famous by a series of films based on those books. And of course, you're referring to James Bond and uh, his martini taken, shaken, never stirred. Not stirred. Not stirred. Perhaps it has something to do with the very sexy, sultry Bond drinking uh, vodka martinis generally. But the beverage, both gin and vodka, became an actual staple of lunchtime drinkers uh, for New York businessmen in the 1960s and 70s. In midtown eateries like Toot Shores and the Four Seasons, um, you would often just see tables of men just pounding back martinis, often men in more of the creative professions uh, like Madison Avenue advertising executives. To quote from the New York Daily News on April 8th, 1976, quote, On Madison Avenue, the three martini lunch is the blue plate special. 
million dollar ad accounts change hands in inverse ratio to the amount of vermouth waved by the bartender at Mike Manucci's. The man who can hold his booze best is the account executive of the year and is coveted by all the major agencies. Could, do you think they even knew what they were signing? <laughs> no, that's why you took people to three martini lunches. Well, anyway, these three martini lunches became politicized in the 70s during the presidential campaign of Jimmy Carter, who decried the indulgent tax write-offs of the three martini lunches. Just consider tens of millions of dollars of martinis written off as a business expense. <laughs> Good thing that could never get through Congress today. Or could it? Well, anyway, there's nothing like a good martini at a fabulous cocktail bar consumed in moderation, mm -hmm. unlike Don Draper and his co-workers. In every episode of Mad Men. But you can also make a pretty nice martini at home for the holidays. Now for our fourth New York-themed cocktail, the one that maybe many of our listeners have been sort of licking their lips waiting for, I present to you the Cosmopolitan. Take it away, Carrie. That afternoon, I dragged my poor, tortured soul out to lunch with Stanford Blatch and attempted to stun it senseless with Cosmopolitans. You know, monogamy is on the way out again. It had a brief comeback in the 90s, but as the millennium approaches, everyone's leaving their options open. Come on, you wouldn't commit to a nice guy given the option. I can't even commit to a long-distance carrier. Yeah, you know what you are? God. <laughs> and what, 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 what year is that from? That was 1998, and um, to listeners who might not understand the concept of long-distance carrier, um, he's referring to a long-distance telephone <laughs> provider. If, um, we'll talk about it maybe in a different show. That is a time capsule. We'll have to. Re we'll just have to explore the whole phenomenon of Sex in the City in, an in another um, episode. But yeah. this—that's a great setup for the Cosmopolitan, and that was the first time that a Cosmopolitan was ever mentioned on Sex in the City. It's now very mm -hmm. associated with that show. What yeah. what year was that? That that clip was from season one, episode seven, called "The Monogamist," which aired on July nineteenth, nineteen ninety eight. I should note that this fact was hunted down as part of the spectacular research on the history of the Cosmo that was done by New Orleans-based mixologist and writer Cheryl Charming, a.k.a. Miss Charming. Straight from Miss Charming the Mixologist. Yes, look her up on social media, folks, um, and we'll get to more of her research in a moment. So if that was 1998, Eight. Mm -hmm. um, I assume the Cosmopolitan had been around enough for it to be trendy on this show. It wasn't invented by Sex in the City. No, it was not invented by Carrie Bradshaw or Miranda or Charlotte or even <laughs> Samantha. Um, but by this point, the drink had been sort of bar hopping across the country for years. Mm -hmm. um, and there are, of course, multiple storylines about its development like with everything else. But my favorite uh, traces the cocktail back to Provincetown, Massachusetts in the 1970s. After all, the Cosmo is related to the much simpler Cape Cod, which is just a really simple mixed drink made of vodka and cranberry juice um, garnished with a lime. And that makes sense because Cape Cod, the area of Cape Cod, is actually known for cranberries, cranberry yes. um, cultivation and production. Um, what is the what's the difference then between a Cape Cod and a Cosmopolitan? Well, initially, it included just another liquor that was poured into the shaker, triple sec, along with some roses lime juice. This seems to be the early P-Town var variant here which makes it, as a cocktail, very similar, quite close, to a kamikaze, mm -hmm. which was vodka and triple sec and lime. Uh, the only addition here is the addition of cranberry juice, and the, the proportions are different, too. And it seems that this, you know, this pleasant pink concoction likely jumped from Provincetown to the bars of San Francisco thanks to a Cleveland bartender named John Kane. 
So the Cosmo, on its way out to San Francisco, makes this pit stop here in Cleveland because of this man, John Kane. Well, according to, to Miss Charming's research and her correspondence with John Kane, he had been tending bar in Cleveland at a restaurant called the Rusty Scupper in the early 1980s. Many of his colleagues, waiters, were gay, and they'd visit P-Town during the summer, and they'd bring back to Cleveland tales of this fabulous pink drink, the Cosmo, that they were drinking out there. Later, then in 1987, John Kane and his wife moved out to San Francisco, where he found work at a restaurant called Julie's Supper Club, and he started mixing up a lot of Cosmos out there. So then how does it get back to the East Coast here? How does it get back to New York? Well, that would take another bartender, um, this one named Patrick or Patty Mitten, who worked out in San Francisco and then moved to New York in late 1987 and started working in the East Village at, guess where, Greg? Our favorite old place, the Life Cafe on Tompkins oh. Square Park. Wow. Made famous by the musical Rent, but an old standby on the north side of Tompkins Square Park. At Avenue B. Well, according to Miss Charming's research, Patrick Patty Mitten taught his coworkers how to make this, you know, San Francisco pink martini called a Cosmopolitan. But is this, was this precisely the same kind of Cosmo that Carrie Bradshaw would then enjoy like a decade later? No. Okay. So then follow me here. The drink would kind of get an upgrade, okay, when one of Patty's co-workers, Melissa Huffsmith, got a new job over at the Odeon, the ultra-hip, you know, Tribeca Brasserie, which had been opened by Keith McNally and his partners in 1980. Oh, and we mentioned the Odeon in our Tribeca show a few years ago mm-hmm. uh, with its beautiful kind of like retro glam diner-ish finish inside. Mm-hmm. Um, you also, you know, may know the Odeon if you read Bright Light's Big City by Jay McInerney because it was uh, a depiction of it. It was included on the cover of the book. Right. Or if you're familiar, you know, with the opening credits for years of SNL. And that makes sense because Lorne Michaels, after all, was an Odeon regular, mm. along with a long list of 1980s stars and, and writers and artists. The Odeon, in many ways, I think, embodied, you know, the transformation that was taking place in Tribeca, in its neighborhood, because the restaurant had been just a modest old cafeteria, you know, that had been serving up meals from a steam table. And McNally and his partners transformed it, you know, re-envisioned it into this fashionable downtown bistro that served good food and this hip vintage decor. And they would go on, his partners, and he would go on to to open many other fashionable restaurants all over town, including the Café Luxembourg, Lucky Strike, Balthazar, Pastis, Schiller's, and many more. So late 80s, and the Cosmo is now at the Odeon. Yes, that's the story. Now, I found an article that ran in the New York Daily News on April 10th, 1996, The article was titled, Let's Toast to the New Era of Cocktails. Um, It's all about the new retro cocktail craze that was sweeping the city in the mid-90s. In it, they quote Toby Cicchini, uh, who was working at the Odeon in the 1980s. Quote, Toby Cicchini believes he had a hand in creating the absolute citron version of the Cosmopolitan. When Cicchini was at Odeon in 1988, Melissa Huffsmith, another bartender, showed him a drink with vodka, triple sec, roses lime juice, and a dash of cranberry juice. It was called the Cosmopolitan out in San Francisco, she said. It looked pretty, they agreed, but tasted awful. So they remade it with absolute citron, Cointreau, fresh lime juice, and a dash of cranberry. Soon, everybody in New York was talking about the absolute citron Cosmo. So what happened here at the Odeon is the they took it up a few notches. They yeah. here at the Odeon they they added the absolute citron. They added mm-hmm. some just finer ingredients, more of those top shelf ingredients to to give it a little bit more flair. Not just triple sec. They made a Cointreau. So they they made it fancier. And Chakini is is widely credited with inventing 
this modern version of the Cosmo or upgrading the Cosmo to what it is today. And he even he even wrote a memoir in 2003 called Cosmopolitan, A Bartender's Life. So then, Greg, you can imagine my confusion when earlier today, when I had sort of fallen down this Cosmo research black hole, I came upon this article in the Fort Myers, Florida News Press from October 27th, 1995. It said simply, Go Cosmopolitan. Heads turned when Madonna was seen sipping one at a posh New York club, and Peter Gabriel ordered one delivered to his table at another New York hangout. What's hot is the Cosmopolitan. So I'm reading that, and I'm assuming that Madonna's probably at the Odeon, but then the article continues, it's believed to have been invented in that most trendy of places, South Beach in Miami. Oh, where did that come from? How did it get down there? <laughs> well, you know, like with all of these other drink histories, there's always some secondary plot. And in this case, this story has it. The, the Cosmo was actually invented in 1985 or 86 by a bartender named Cheryl Cook at the Strand Restaurant in South Beach. So cheers to Cheryl Cook. Um, we don't mean to slight you in this story, um, but we're sticking to New York. <laughs> So, but let's get back to Carrie Bradshaw here. How okay. did she get a Cosmo in her hand? Well, for that, let's go actually back to the Life Cafe, okay? Another of Patty's colleagues was a man named Peter Pavia. Now, Peter went on to work at some other bars and restaurants, including in 1994, for a few years at the restaurant Match. Remember that place at 160 Mercer Street? Mm-hmm. He was there from 1994 to 96, and he was pouring out Cosmos, as he had been doing for years, to a bunch of regulars, including to the writer Candace Bushnell, whose column, Sex in the City, was running during those very same years in the New York Observer. And that's where we get Carrie at the bar with a Cosmo, right? Her creator was fond of them. Yes, Candace Bushnell's column would then be, of course, the basis for the HBO comedy series Sex in the City, which ran from 1998 to 2004 and starred Sarah Jessica Parker, Kim Cattrall, Kristen Davis, and Cynthia Nixon. And these ladies would be more responsible probably than anybody else for bringing the Cosmo into bars and into living rooms around the world. So cheers to John Kane, uh, yes. to Sarah Jessica Parker, and to all of the folks in Lower Manhattan, all those folks in the East Village, and Soho, and Tribeca, who gave us the Cosmo. And a huge thank you to Cheryl Charming for her reams of Cosmo research. If anybody else wants to go deep into the Cosmo story, you can read years of interviews um, and correspondence that she did on its history on her website, misscharming.com. But Tom, who invented the frozen Cosmo? Remember we used to drink those at G Lounge? <laughs> well, anyway, for more images of fabulous cocktails, maybe some old-timey recipes from 19th century cocktail guides, visit our website, boweryboyshistory.com. A heartfelt holiday thank you to all of you who have joined us at patreon.com slash boweryboys. It's because of you, our patrons, that Greg and I have been able to devote all of our time to producing a new Bowery Boys episode every two weeks. We certainly would not have made it through this very challenging year without your support. And we, we really are grateful to mm -hmm. you and your support this holiday season. Now, if you sign up at any level, so go to Patreon, sign up at any level, you'll receive a very special holiday present from Tom and I, the Bowery Boys Holiday Spectacular, which is a special show we recorded just for patrons, featuring kind of a review of the year, and then, of course, ending with a story about Tom and I's exceptional evening back in the 1990s, maybe drinking Cosmos, I don't remember, our evening with Eartha Kitt. Greg and me and Eartha at the Cafe Carlisle. <laughs> you won't want to miss that story. No. It's available to everybody as a big thank you at patreon.com slash boweryboys. With a special thanks to patrons, newly signed up patrons, Jordan C., Kate G. and Marianne B. from Brooklyn, 
Matthew S., Nathan K., and Jennifer A. from Manhattan, Steve D. from Washington, D.C., Simon Marlis from Virginia, Gregory F. from Florida, Dylan L. from Texas, and Brian R. from Arizona. Thank you for joining us on Patreon. And thank you for making the show possible. Be sure to head over to BoweryBoysWalks.com. We have a number of really fun new walks that we've added to the mix, including a West Village musical history virtual tour, an East Village in the late 20th century tour, a gay bars that are gone tour, and many others, including the return of Edith Wharton's New York. Join the fun at BoweryBoysWalks.com. So we wish you a safe and healthy new year. We're looking forward to the year 2021. Oh boy, are we. And we'll have brand new shows for you at the start of the year. So Greg, 2021 promises that we will be able to record together again. Together again and have live shows again. So uh, things are looking up. So thank you very much for joining us. Have a great New York week and a great 2021 whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Cheers. Worcestershire. 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 Worcestershire.